Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Georgine Rice Show. James Blind is producing Clark Hilton Engineering. Dan Rice has given up his office for the sake of the cause. Today in the second hour of the program, we're going to talk with Kendra White. She is uh, with American Family Studios. She's the director of a new film. It's a full-length film, a documentary. His Image, it's on gender and sexuality. We'll talk with her about that. It's going to be available free of charge online tomorrow. Uh, We'll give you instructions on how to find out more. We'll also talk with Dr. Paul Brownback. He is the author of Licensing Selfishness, the Secular and Evangelical Ideology Destroying America. That's coming up also in the second hour of today's program. First, a look at some of the news. Well, the President uh, Trump's campaign manager sent a two-page letter on Monday to the Commission on Presidential Debates, asking the committee to rethink and reissue the topics that are going to be discussed during this week's upcoming presidential debate in Nashville. Well, for the good of campaign integrity and for the benefit of the American people, we urge you to rethink and reissue a set of topics for the October 22nd debate with an emphasis on foreign policy. That's what uh, Bill Stipen uh, tweeted on Monday. My guess is the commission is not interested in any input up to this point, And uh, it will remain as uh, was established by the uh, debater, uh, the the debate host, I should say. And we'll tell you more about him in just a few moments. Meanwhile, the Biden campaign is facing renewed criticism over its deep connections with big tech after both Twitter and Facebook censored a story from The New York Post detailing allegedly corrupt business dealings by Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden. Well, the move prompted fresh criticism on social media over the Biden transition team's hiring of two Facebook executives. Jessica Hertz, which is reportedly uh, which came days after the 2020 Democrats campaign, pinned a letter to the social media giant urging them to censor President Trump's posts. Well, out of uh, the Biden campaign's nearly 700 person volunteer advisory group, eight members work for Facebook, Apple, Google or Amazon. The New York Times reported in August. Well, in other developments, Twitter removed a top White House coronavirus advisors tweet claiming the masks don't work. And Charlie Kirk says he's in a hostage situation with Twitter after the social media giant blocked his account. Senator Ron Johnson pressed um, uh, Ray on the validity of the Hunter Biden laptop claim. Well, at least 15 Portland police employees made more than $200,000 last fiscal year, largely due to overtime pay. According to a report released on Sunday, the fiscal year from July 1st, 2019 to the end of June 2020 didn't include overtime made by police during the past four months of daily protests and riots in the city, according to a wage database obtained by the Oregonian through a records request. Well, there's a lot of people working a lot of hours because there's just a lot of work to be done and we're limited on the number of police officers we have. That's a, a quote from Sergeant Ken Dulo who was the third highest paid officer. The figures show 728 bureau employees made more than $100,000. Well, a Portland gas station attendant refused to sell gas to a black man over protest fires, a lawsuit claims. And Homeland Security and the Justice Department have been sued by Portland and Oakland. Portland police find suspected riot gear while searching a car near a demonstration. And the Portland police union boss is backing a plan to limit assembly rights. During a television interview with a local Milwaukee station this weekend, President Trump hinted he might get involved if Republican senators don't support a second coronavirus stimulus package worth trillions of dollars. You have put $1.8 trillion on the table. Where will there be more money by Election Day? Do you have a deal? Uh, Charles Benson asked the president. 
president replied, I want the money by tonight, but Nancy Pelosi doesn't want to approve it because she thinks it's good politically for her not to approve it. She wants to bail out poor run Democrat states, and we don't want to do that. I don't think she wants to approve it anyway. I think even if we gave her the money for the poorly run Democrat states, I don't think she'd approve it anyway, end quote. Well, Benson asked if the president was getting any resistance from GOP senators, and the president said that he will take care of that problem in two minutes. Well, he has received uh, pushback from uh, senators, Republican senators. The president says if he and Pelosi agree on a stimulus package, the Senate uh, GOP will get on board. And Pelosi says she doesn't uh, want to sweep up the dumpings of this elephant after the Trump presidency. Wow. After a year of not speaking to Trump, Pelosi says uh, talks don't have to be in person. And to put it into a perspective, Pelosi and Republicans in the Senate are unhappy with the White House coronavirus offer. One step forward, two steps back. Well, thousands upon thousands of Trump supporters greeted the president in California over the weekend. The president called the Biden family a criminal enterprise as the crowds chanted, lock him up at the Nevada rally, reminiscent, of course, of 2016, only it was Hillary Clinton in the crosshairs. As asteroid, uh, rather, an asteroid could strike the Earth a day prior to the election. <laughs> you know, if it was any other year, you'd just laugh it off. But, you know, it is 2020. But that's what astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson says. Was it tongue in cheek? Apparently not. And Pete Buttigieg claims an Amy Coney Barrett confirmation would put his marriage in danger. He, of course, is married to his male husband. A hiker has been found in Zion National Park two weeks after going missing, according to park officials. Nancy Pelosi set a 48-hour deadline to reach a stimulus deal before Election Day. China passes an export control law following U.S. moves. And the spread of the electric car has sparked a fight for control of overcharging. While Twitter banned anyone who's linked to the story, networks are ignoring the Hunter Biden story. The media acted as if there was no story at all. The uh, computer repair uh, shop claims to have a signature proof that Hunter, in fact, dropped it off. And then there's this. Hunter Biden was receiving a $10 million annual fee from a Chinese billionaire who has been accused of corruption and with whom he sought to increase the cash flow with a joint business ownership on the uh, in 2017, in August, in an email from Mr. Biden, um, uh, Byron York points out that the big story is, did Hunter Biden introduce that Ukrainian businessman to his vice president father? That would be an important, uh, would be important rather for two reasons. One, we already know that the corrupt Ukrainian energy company Burisma put the younger Biden on its board to win influence with the Obama administration, whose point man of Ukraine policy was Hunter Biden's father, Joe, then vice president of the United States. The New York Post story suggests that Burisma actually got something for the $50,000 or more it was paying Hunter Biden. And now with Twitter and Facebook censoring a story that could hurt Joe Biden, his campaign is facing more criticism for his cozy connection to them. Well, the president is getting good news from early ballots in key states. After noting that polls indicated early voting would greatly favor Biden, the story explains data out of Michigan, Wisconsin, and Ohio indicates that registered Republicans are returning ballots at about the same rate as registered Democrats in the battleground states. Now, presuming, of course, that they are voting for 
the Republican on the ballot, and you cannot uh, take that for granted. Given that Trump voters are expected to come out in force on Election Day, that's looking good if Republicans are up or basically uh, tied in the early voting in these states. A lot of Republicans were expected not to vote by mail, but in person because of concerns about the process. The pollster who nailed the 2016 election is giving Trump hope. And uh, why Florida looks good? David Harsany breaks down some of the nonsense coming out of Biden's mouth these days and what's going on in Florida. Well, the New York Times op-ed is treating uh, Mr. Farrakhan, who is a black supremacist, as a gentleman. Now, I know we in the culture today don't believe there are black racists or black supremacists, but as a black woman, I'm telling you, there are. As the article praised the grossly anti-Semitic leader, Ari Weiss, he paints a much clearer picture in uh, his Twitter feed. And Seth Mandel says that New York Times op-ed author on Farrakhan says Jews have become white, have no standing on oppression. It's truly amazing what's appropriate to say about Jews openly in the nation's major newspapers from city where the cops are sent around looking for Jews hiding in places of worship. Mm. And a Barrett confirmation, they say, is likely the 22nd is when they're expecting the vote to begin. Senator uh, Tim Scott says Amy Coney Barrett is one of the most well-prepared nominees for the Supreme Court in recent memory. Democrats cannot attack her, her record, so they are left with attacking her religion, her family, and her integrity. The good news is they will not win. Well, we'll find out if that is the case. Tim Carney says, quick reminder, uh, nobody could, uh, with a straight face, claim that Democrats would do what they uh, what they are asking Republicans to do, which is refuse to vote on a qualified nominee of their own party who had 51 votes, not a chance in, well, you know that place. It's laughable to even consider. David Limbaugh uh, says... Uh, being an originalist, as she explained it, is precisely what the court needs. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I need to take a quick break, but we'll be back in just a few moments to continue taking a look at some of the headline news. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, NBC News reporter Kristen Welker, the debate moderator for the final presidential debate, has pretty strong ties to Democrat activism and has even been caught on camera tipping off a member of Hillary Clinton's failed presidential campaign about at least one question that she was going to ask during an interview, according to a new report. Robert Reich calls for the post-Trump uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission tweeting, when this nightmare is over, referring to the unseating of Donald Trump, we need a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. That's a reference to Rwanda following the genocide there. It would erase Trump's lies, comfort those who have been uh, harmed by his hatefulness, and name every official, politician, uh, executive, and media mogul whose greed and cowardice enabled this catastrophe, end quote. Tim Carney says this is basically saying if you ever sided with Trump on anything, a tax cut, a nominee, moving the embassy, criticizing CNN, you better pray he wins because if we get power, you're in trouble. That's the translation. Rod Dreher says the liberals wonder why some of us on the right are worried about soft totalitarianism. And Amy Swearer says, imagine comparing four years of a democratically elected official you don't like to decades of apartheid in South Africa and wanting to be taken seriously. Well, the Marxist founder of Black Lives Matter inks a deal with Warner Brothers Television so Marxism can uh, spread and it's, I believe, children's television. A rapper has been caught committing the crime he foretold in his music video, although there's no connection between what you hear 
uh, in entertainment or what you see. There's no connection at all. We're being told repeatedly. A rapper who bragged about defrauding the government's unemployment program in a music video has been arrested on federal charges of carrying out that exact scheme he mentioned in his video, according to the U.S. Department of Justice. Fortunately, there was absolutely no connection between his music and what he actually did. Oh, I was really relieved. The Supreme Court will hear the president's appeal to exclude illegal immigrants from the census. And the, the hyper Nancy Pelosi is giving Trump a 48 hour deadline to compromise on COVID-19. We'll just leave it at that. A Biden town hall attendee has been identified as an ex-Obama speechwriter and the wife of a prominent Democrat, you know, in that uh, undecided town hall where people were asking innocent questions of someone they only knew from television. Chris Kuhn says that his mind is open to packing the Supreme Court and a Biden granddaughter couldn't agree more that Joe Biden will implement the agenda of the far left. Well, the number of cases have surged past 40 million infections worldwide. That's the latest on COVID-19. And 10 counties account for 22% of the fatalities and 11% of the population here. A study found one-third of excess deaths, I'm not sure what an excess death is, were not due to the coronavirus. In other words, among the numbers that were given, about one-third were not deaths due to coronavirus. Well, the NYPD's woes are mounting. The patrol chief's sudden retirement is part of a troubling exodus there and elsewhere, and a record number of Seattle police officers left the force in September. San Diego changed its uh, school grading practices to eliminate behavioral problems, so it's as simple as simply changing the grading system. Who knew? Protesters uh, filled a casket outside a nursing home with thousands of copies of Andrew Cuomo's new book, in which he claims it wasn't his fault. Time to pay the piper. Chicago ranks um, the rattiest city for the sixth year in a row. These are actual rats, not, you know, proverbial rats. And the feds withheld $4 million from the 9-11 health program over New York City's debts. After a reprieve, a wave of evictions are expected across the United States and a deadly windstorm in the Midwest in August was uh, historically costly with damage reaching uh, the cost $7.5 billion. Mexico's corrupt former defense minister has been arrested in Los Angeles and China has threatened to detain Americans if the U.S. prosecutes Chinese scholars here. Gretchen Whitmer was uh, caught with a controversial sign after claiming lock her up is inciting terrorism. Governor Whitmer displayed a um, 8645 sign during her TV appearance. 86 uh, is a shorthand for killing someone. 45 is the number that the president holds as the 45th president of the United States. Whitmer is apparently encouraging assassination attempts against President Trump just weeks after someone sent a rice and laced package to the White House. She was uh, being interviewed on claiming the president and others chanting lock her up was inciting terrorism. Hmm. Well, a French teacher was beheaded in France after showing caricatures of Mohammed. Wow. And on this day in history, 1765, the Stamp Act Congress met in New York, adopted a Declaration of Rights and Liberties, which the British Parliament soundly ignored. 1814, the first documented public performance of the Star-Spangled Banner takes place at the Holiday Street Theater in Baltimore. On this day in history, 1944, the U.S. Navy begins accepting black women into the Women Accepted for Volunteer Emergency Service, or WAVES. 
1977, the supersonic Concorde makes its first landing in New York City. And on this day in history, the stock market crashes as the Dow Jones Industrial Average plunges 508 points or 22.6% in value. It's the biggest daily percentage loss to date to close at 1,738.74 in uh, what came to be known as Black Monday. And finally, on this day in history, 2005, a defiant Saddam Hussein pleads innocent to charges of premeditated murder and torture as his trial opens under heavy security in the former headquarters of his Ba'ath Party in Baghdad. Well, with the 2020 presidential election less than a few weeks away, encumbered yet again by questions and concerns surrounding ballot security and fraud, revolutionary blockchain voting technology is being piloted in small pockets of the country. And Tuesday marked the first time a vote has ever been cast for a U.S. president in the general election using such an app on a personal mobile phone. Well, this is an historic day, not only for ballot integrity and election systems, but for liberty and the republic itself. Josh Daniels, who's a Utah resident, uh, speaking to Fox News, said in a statement, well, his vote went to former Mighty Ducks child actor turned uh, cryptocurrency entrepreneur turned 2020 independent candidate Brock Pierce. In true pioneer spirit, Utah County is uh, honored to be the first place where a blockchain vote was cast in a presidential general election, the Utah County clerk says, who uh, implemented the votes platform uh, at, as uh, both a security and cost-cutting measure 20 months ago. We are proud to lead other states and the nation on this innovative and cutting-edge technology. Well, the uh, uh, Ms. Gardner, who is with the Utah County clerk, uh, who has been using the system for five elections, says it is uh, one of the most cost-effective initiatives that her office has undertaken since she was elected 20 months ago. As uh, And much of her um, Pierce's campaign is centered on the push for technological innovation to solve the plethora of problems nationwide and ensure that America retains its spot as the global frontrunner in modernization and advancement across all major industries. Well, the problem with the Internet is that you can copy anything, songs, videos, pictures, Internet technology, uh, does uh, not only allow the information to stay in one place, um, but blockchain is a database at its uh, core, and that database is impervious to any type of duplication, meaning it cannot be tampered with, and there can only be one version of it. So when we walk, uh, when we talk rather about voting, it is perfectly suited to elections. It ensures that absolute integrity of our elections. It ensures voters can vote with confidence. And there's no hacker anywhere, any place on the planet who's already starting to work on how to infiltrate blockchain databases. Well, just last week, this, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency and the FBI released a joint advisory warning of advanced persistent threat actors chaining vulnerabilities, a commonly used tactic exploding, exploiting rather multiple vulnerabilities in the course of a single intrusion in an attempt to compromise federal, state, local, tribal, and territorial government networks, critical infrastructure, and elections organizations. Well, they stress that it is aware of some instances where this activity resulted in unauthorized access to elections support systems. However, it has no evidence to date that integrity of elections data has been compromised, at least for now. From Pierce's lens, this should all be a, a problem of the past, at least in elections to come, and is slowly becoming a staple of the present. Well, the U.S. electoral system, for the most part, in Pierce's purview, is still trying to use 20th century solutions for 21st century problems. But through blockchain, everyone can vote from their phone with no need to go to the voting booth.
That seems to me fraught with all kinds of uh, questions, problems, potential problems and issues. We'll leave it at that for now. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. A reminder, coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Kendra White. She's with American Family Studios. She's the director of a new documentary, a full-length film, In His Image on Gender and Sexuality. We'll talk all about it and where you can watch it for free online beginning tomorrow. We'll also talk with Dr. Paul Brownback. He's the author of Licensing Selfishness, the Secular and Evangelical Ideology Destroying America, both coming up in the five o'clock hour. More than half of the members of a 30-strong international monitoring team deployed by the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe uh, to observe the U.S. elections come from countries that are ranked not free or partly free in an annual assessment of political rights and civil liberties in the nations of the world. So I feel a lot better. They're going to be observing. The election observation mission is tasked to assess whether the elections are held in line with OSCE commitments and other international obligations and standards for democratic elections, as well as with national legislation. Well, three of the 30 long-term observers hail from Azerbaijan and Tajikistan, both ranked not free in the 2020 ranking by the veteran democracy watchdog Freedom House. Another 13 from eight countries deemed partly free one each from Albania, Armenia, Bosnia, Georgia, and Moldova, two each from northern Macedonia and Serbia, and four from Montenegro. The remaining 14 come from free democracies, three Czechs, nine Germans, and two Swiss nationals. In addition to the 30 observers who arrived earlier this month, a core team of experts also on the ground comprised uh, of 15 members, one of whom comes from a not-free country, Tajikistan, and another six uh, from five partly free countries, Armenia, Georgia, Kazakhstan, uh, northern Macedonia, and Serbia. The OSCE is a grouping of some 57 nations in Europe, Central Asia, and North America. Most are full or flawed democracies, but it also includes seven autocratic former Soviet republics, uh, as well as uh, Turkey. The organization stressed that members of observer missions do not represent their governments, although their government do select them and cover their expenses. Well, the two not free governments that uh, selected nationals to take part in the current mission in the United States are among the worst scoring in the Freedom House assessments. Out of the 49 countries in the not free list, they are the ninth and 14th places from the bottom. Well, Tajikistan earns zero out of a possible 40 points for political rights. President, um, the president there, whose name I won't attempt to pronounce, who holds the official title of leader of the nation, has ruled since 1992 and constitutional amendments ratified in 2016 removed presidential term limits specifically for him. Quite convenient. The country has no record of peaceful transfer of power between rival parties, according to Freedom House, and the political opposition has been devastated by a sustained campaign of repression in recent years, and the government exerts tight control over religious expression and activity. But... They have a representative that's going to be here judging our election. Azerbaijan scores number two out of 40 for election rights. The president there has been in power since 2003 and no term limits apply. Corruption is rampant and the formal political opposition has been weakened by years of persecution. The authorities have carried out on extensive crackdown on civil liberties in recent years, leaving little room for independent expression or activism. Under a 1990 agreement, this European group members allow observers from the group to monitor their elections to the extent permitted by law, and U.S. elections have been monitored since 2002. And they're supposed to exercise strict 
political impartiality. Not sure if that's possible given how they are selected and what their role is, but nonetheless, you can rest assured internationals, some of which wouldn't know freedom because they haven't had the benefit of experiencing it, will be judging our election. Meanwhile, the Republican National Committee on Friday filed a complaint with the Federal Election Commission alleging that the censorship of the New York Post article about Hunter Biden's overseas business dealings and former Vice President Joe Biden's alleged knowledge of those dealings amounts to an illegal corporate in-kind political contribution to the Biden campaign. Well, the complaint was filed by the RNC, a political organization, on Friday and obtained exclusively by Fox News. It states that the RNC believes that Twitter has violated the FECA and the commission's regulations by making corporate in-kind contributions to Biden for president. The RNC in its complaint said that Twitter is a partisan actor run by partisan Democrats, is using its corporate resources to provide active support for Joe Biden's campaign in violation of federal law, and demanded that the FEC conduct an immediate investigation into Twitter's illegal in-kind contributions to the Biden campaign and impose the maximum penalty allowed under law. Well, the complaint comes after Twitter prevented users from sharing a link to a New York Post report about emails shedding light on Hunter Biden's business dealings and contradicting the Democratic presidential nominee's past comments, claiming he had no knowledge of his son's business activity. Well, the Supreme Court has agreed to hear cases pertaining to two of the Trump administration's most contentious policies, the use of Pentagon funds to construct a U.S.-Mexico border wall and the Remain in Mexico policy mandating that asylum seekers wait in Mexico while their cases are processed in the U.S. The court revealed in a routine order list on Monday that it would hear the cases, which could be among the first for Judge Amy Coney Barrett if Senate Republicans succeed in confirming her to the court bench. Barrett's confirmation would cement a 6-3 conservative majority on the court, or I should say constructionist uh, majority on the court. Trump demanded funding for a border wall in the 2019 federal budget, but House Democrats refused to include such funding in the final legislation. The president initially declined to accept the budget without funding, leading to the longest federal government shutdown in U.S. history. However, the president eventually signed a budget without funding for the barrier. The administration instead diverted Pentagon funds towards construction of the wall. The funds have primarily been used to refurbish existing barriers with 300 miles of barrier repaired or rebuilt and five miles of new barrier constructed during the term, uh, Trump's term in office. Well, the Remain in Mexico policy, formerly known as the Migrant Protection Protocols, has been widely criticized as placing asylum seekers in excessive danger. Under the policy, asylum seekers who cross the southern U.S. border illegally are required to wait in Mexico in the border towns while waiting for an immigration hearing. Those hearings have ceased entirely since the onset of the coronavirus pandemic in March. Asylum seekers waiting in Mexico face targeted discrimination, physical violence, sexual assault, overwhelmed and corrupt law enforcement, lack of food and shelter, practical obstacles to participation in court proceedings in the United States. Judge William Fleischer of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals in February wrote of the injunction. And again, the court has decided that they will hear this and uh, that will be in the new term and uh, very soon. Well, giant social media companies grew into what they are today precisely because they created platforms allowing users to easily, freely, and widely express their opinions, their thoughts, and their views. Thus, it's more than ironic that they're now squelching and controlling the very thing that gave them their existence, free speech. One of the big tech's primary means of speech control is the fact checker, 
which in practice serves only as an opinion monitor. Even the concept of a fact checker is dubious on its face. It presumes as um, not only plausible, but common, that which our nation's founders recognized as impossible, a wholly unbiased arbiter of truth. Wisely, our founders recognized the folly of those who would, uh, in the name of truth, seek to control and limit unwanted speech, hence the existence of the First Amendment and its protection of our God-given right to the freedom of speech. Well, the First Amendment's speech protection make no caveats or evaluations of what type of speech is to be protected. Indeed, all speech, regardless of its uh, factuality or truthfulness, is to not only be allowed, but protected. The rise of social media and mainstream media fact checkers is therefore a direct assault on this fundamental freedom, not because it challenges the views or opinions of others, but because the fact checker is uh, being used as a tool by the powerful to justify silencing views and opinions they reject. And the examples of big tech's abuse of America's free speech via fact checkers is piling up. One of the latest um, insidious uh, cases uh, from Facebook, which censored an ad from the pro-life Susan B. Anthony list this past Friday over the claim that the ad had been fact-checked as false by independent fact-checkers. Well, the trouble is that the ad, which claimed that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris support abortion up to the moment of birth, as well as support taxpayer funding of abortion, was in fact true. More troubling still was who the independent fact-checker was that erroneously labeled the ad partly false, giving Facebook the cover for censorship. And we'll tell you more about that in a moment, but I do need to take a quick break. Stay with us. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up after the top of the hour, we'll hear from Kendra White. She's with the American Family Studios and the director of a new documentary film, In His Image, on gender and sexuality. That's coming up at five o'clock. Also, we'll talk with Dr. Paul Brownback. Uh, Licensing Selfishness is the title of his book, The Secular and Evangelical Ideology Destroying America. Well, just before the break, we were talking about uh, censorship among the high tech firms. One of the latest incidents comes from Facebook that censored an ad from the pro-life Susan B. Anthony list this past Friday over the claim that the ad had been fact checked as false by independent fact checkers. Well, the trouble is that the ad, which claimed that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, his running mate, support abortion up to the moment of birth, as well as support taxpayer funding of abortion, uh, was in fact true. More troubling still was who the independent fact checker was that erroneously labeled the ad partly false, giving Facebook the cover to censor the uh, uh, the ad. Well, the culprit was the relatively new media outlet, The Dispatch. It was created just last year by longtime Beltway political pundits Jonah Goldberg and Steve Hayes. The media site is little... Um, other than a bastion for Beltway establishment, never Trumpers to ply their trade under the conservative banner. Uh, the question is, no matter how anti-Trump one may be, if principled conservative is what one claims, how can one make a mistake on this mag- of this magnitude on such a foundational conservative policy position like being pro-life? Well, after three days of uh, blowback, Hayes finally ran damage control by admitting that the fact check was not justified, dubiously blaming it on a publishing and uh, editing error. Well, too late, the damage was done. However, what was most disconnecting, uh, disconcerting rather, to those who didn't know um, was Hayes' acknowledgement that the dispatch is one of Facebook's cadre of independent fact checkers. Well, that a media organization 
would have internal fact checkers is not the problem. In fact, that's good business practice that a media organization touting itself as conservative and committed to preserving American values and principles would be party to an organization that works to actively silence American speech is outrageous, particularly certain kinds of speech. But it shows the extent to which um, Trump derangement syndrome can affect people. Fact checkers are not always or rarely are they reliable. Well, for three days, Joe Biden refused to say a word about the Post's exclusive stories uh, last week linking him to his son Hunter Biden's business dealings with uh, Ukraine and China. It wasn't till 7.45 p.m. Friday at the Detroit airport that the former vice president briefly stopped for questions. And CBS reporter Bo Erickson asked about the uh, emails found on Hunter's laptop, which was abandoned late uh, last April at a Mac repair shop. I have no response. He snapped. Another smear campaign right up your alley. Well, a video of uh, his remarks on Erickson's Twitter account has been viewed six million times. But for some in the media, Erickson was at fault for asking the question. Bo, this is um, your news director, replied Steve Holzer, a UCLA journalism instructor and new director who's worked at CBS in the past, but not currently, according to his LinkedIn profile. The right question is, what do you think of the report that Rudy Giuliani used Russian disinformation to try to smear your family 19 days before an election? Well, that tweet tells you everything about the uh, response, the dishonest response to the story from much of the establishment media. Russian disinformation. This is how The New York Times, The Washington Post, CNN and others run protection for the Biden campaign. They've ignored or maligned the story. They've claimed the emails were hacked. Uh, they published an email. This is the Washington um, Examiner. They published an email showing Hunter arranging a meeting in 2015 between the vice president and the senior colleagues at the uh, corrupt energy company, Burisma, uh, which paid him $83,000 a month. $83,000 a month. I suppose there are people who are worth that. It's just a staggering amount. Neither Joe nor Hunter has disputed that the laptop belongs to Hunter or that the material that's been published from the laptop is genuine. Joe's campaign admitted to Politico that an informal meeting with Burisma may have occurred. Well, this is new evidence that Joe participated in his family's cash for influence scheme with shady foreign companies. Now, that is a quote from Miranda Devine. Uh, making the point that the uh, article in the New York uh, Post um, that has been panned by the New York Times, CNN, and others, uh, how that has been handled and trying to make the point that um, they are running protection for the Biden campaign, for which the um, RNC is uh, seeking some compensation for campaign contributions to the Biden campaign. Well, Amazon is known as the everything store, and for good reason. There's just aren't a lot of things you can't buy from the online retail colossus. Well, the box of uh, bacon strip bandages, a mini jail cell for your mobile phone, even a harness and leash for your beloved pet chicken. Yep, the online detailer juggernaut will sell just about anything, anything that is except a new documentary by an esteemed scholar, author, and Hoover Institution senior fellow, Shelby Steele, who is one of my all-time favorite scholars. He's African-American. He's articulate. I, he's just incredible. Anyway, apparently Steele's film, What Killed Michael Brown, falls short of Amazon's quality expectations. Well, quality expectations. Well, this uh, from the company that sells toilet paper with President Donald Trump's face on it, and even worse, sells the autobiography of Hanoi Jane Fonda, but a film that thoughtfully explores the truth behind one of the most racially charged and consequential news stories of the decade, 
a story that began the fictitious hands up, don't shoot narrative that even Barack Obama's Justice Department debunked, a story that was the catalyst for starting Black Lives Matter. That's a bridge apparently too far. Well, Steele's film, which he wrote and narrated and which his son Eli directed, doesn't fit the dominant narrative of white police officers killing young black men because of systematic racism, writes the Wall Street Journal's editorial board. As a result, says the younger Mr. Steele, Amazon rejected it for its uh, streaming service. We were canceled, plain and simple. Well, the film speaks plain truth, says uh, reviewer Jason Riley writes, but it isn't one-sided. Al Sharpton has his say, as does the NAACP. Now, that's not good enough for the uh, cowardly censors at Amazon, though, who informed Steele via email that their film is not eligible for publishing because it doesn't meet Prime Video's content quality expectations. Amazon went on to say it will not be accepting um, resubmission of this title and this decision may not be appealed. So it's final. Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos, who owns the Washington Post and whose net worth is now over $200 billion, may think he has a license not only to print money, but also to gag renowned scholars and social commentators like Shelby Steele. You should think better. Censorship is cowardice. Uh, If you are afraid of a physical fight, you run. If you're afraid of an intellectual fight, you censor. A longtime civil rights activist and community development champion Robert Woodson tweeted out a novel idea Amazon refused to stream Shelby Steele's documentary, What Killed Michael Brown. Uh, They say it doesn't meet Prime Video's content quality expectations. Why not let Americans decide for themselves if the film has merit? Indeed, we're adults. We're not. um, uh, Why not let us decide? Uh, It's sadly telling about elite political conformity, the journal's editors continue, that an intelligent film that gives voice to a variety of people, almost all black, who would otherwise not be heard is somehow deemed unfit for polite company. As Eli Steele puts it, when Amazon rejected us, they also silenced these voices, and that is the great sin of a company that professes to be diverse and inclusive. Perhaps there's something more insidious at work here, something that Amazon's speech stiflers have yet to think through. Their claim about the inferior quality of Steele's work is ridiculous. He's an award-winning author and filmmaker, So their refusal to allow him into their marketplace of ideas is about something else entirely. Steele isn't a bomb thrower, but he is a black conservative. Those two words put together are simply not permitted. As such, he's what former Democrat president and great society architect Lyndon Johnson might have called uppity. The Amazon's uh, efforts to silence uh, him sounds awfully intolerant. Even Jim Crowish, this uh, here streaming service is for members only, boy. Shelby Steele's ideas pose a mortal threat to the left's most loyal voting constituency, and he's being denied access to Amazon's marketplace, either because of the color of his skin or the content of his character. Neither reason is legitimate, but both are bigoted. But you will not find Shelby Steele's impressive film at Amazon. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming at the top of the hour. Then we'll hear from Kendra White with the American Family Studios and their new full-length documentary, In His Image, on gender and sexuality. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Well, American Family Studios, the film division of American Family Association, is releasing a powerful new documentary tomorrow. That's tomorrow, Tuesday, October 20th, that challenges the growing sexual and gender anarchy here in the United States. Well, the film answers that confusion with biblical truth and compassion. Now, it's a feature-length film, In His Image, Delighting in God's Plan for Gender and Sexuality. It's going to be free online with a release beginning on October 20th. And those who partner with the American Family Association to uh, spread the redemptive message of the film uh, will receive a free two-disc DVD set containing feature-length documentary and over three hours of special features, including deleted scenes, extended interviews, and biblical answers to commonly asked questions. Well, here to talk with us about that is Kendra White. She is the director of In His Image, presented by the American Family Studios, uh, and joins us to talk about this film that will be released online tomorrow. Thank you so much for joining us, Kendra. Thank you so much for having me on the program, and thank you for all that you do as a spokesman on these kinds of issues as well. Well, appreciate that. You know, I went to the website. I saw the preview that uh, our listeners can find there. This is very compelling, and I'm convinced because I haven't seen the whole film. Uh, I won't be able to until tomorrow, uh, but it's very well done, and I'm I'm really looking forward to it because this is an issue that must be direct, addressed. Uh, and I appreciate biblical truth and compassion linked together. Uh, those two things are compatible uh, in order to to help equip the church. First of all, what do the scriptures teach and how can I approach this issue uh, during this time? What motivated you to uh, develop this film in his image to take on one of the most uh, contentious issues of our day? Well, it certainly is controversial. And to be honest with you, at first, I did not want to take on this issue when asked to direct this film. But the Lord began moving on my heart as I saw how much bondage there really is around this. And as the Lord began to reveal his heart for those who are, are stuck in, in sexual sin, and that is his heart for people to find freedom and liberty and realizing also how much deception has crept into our churches on this issue. And uh, the lie is that there is no change that's possible. You are born this way and um, even if your attractions are unwanted, there is nothing you can do about it. And that is um, the furthest thing from the truth of what the transformative power of the gospel did. And, That's right. and I appreciate you men mentioning the, the importance of having both truth and compassion on this issue. You know, as I've spent several years researching this, um, the thing that has really flooded my heart is, is just how important it is to listen to the stories of those who struggle with this and really understand where they've come from and there is such a strong link to emotional or physical or sexual abuse for people who struggle with these issues. So as believers, we need to equip ourselves to help those um, that are really, really hurting. And, and the thing about the truth and compassion is you don't have to balance like 50% of one, 50% <laughs> of other. You can have 100%, and we see that lived out in the person of who Jesus is, right? He says, right. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's 100% truth, and yet he's also 100% compassion. And we see moments where the Lord will speak to someone and, and the Pharisees, and he'll call them out on their sin and, and when they're doing something that's unbiblical. But we also have these moments where he will cry with, with Lazarus. He will 
come next to the woman who was caught in adultery and say, I'm not here to condemn you, but go and sin no more. And we have that perfect, perfect example. It really is not difficult to know as Christians how to respond to this. I think because it's such a cliched topic, it's such a controversial issue, we, we like to pretend that there's ambiguity in the scriptures, but scripture is really clear. And that's one thing that we lay out in, in this documentary, is that the Bible is so clear on this issue. And if you will just take a, a moment to arm yourself with a biblical, compassionate response, you can be a lifeline to so many people who are hurting. Oh, absolutely. Now, we've mentioned the emphasis on biblical teaching, but one of the other elements that I think is going to be very powerful are uh, testimonies. I know that social media is now in the process of censoring uh, personal testimonies of individuals who have had an encounter with Christ, which changed everything, and organizations that work with those who want their confession of faith to uh, to. Uh, be consistent with the the way they live their life. Their voices are being silenced. So this film, it seems to me in his image is even more important now than it's ever been because it's difficult to find voices. And there are many of them uh, talking about the transformative work of God. Can you tell us a little bit about the the testimonies? You come from four different uh, positions on the subject of gender and sexuality in these testimonies. Absolutely. And the one thing that they all have in common is that they have all faced censorship on this issue. You're yeah. absolutely right. We have um, Walt Heyer, who um, he was born a man and transitioned to become a woman and lived that way for eight years. And he has a ministry called sexchangeregret.com. And he deals with speaking to detransitioners about this issue and, and lets them know it is no matter what age you are, you can always find hope in Jesus and restoration. But he warns people about some of the um, things that people do not tell you when you start um, going down a medical path of mm-hmm. transitioning. And he has faced a lot of censorship. His story so powerful. And he, he specifically talks about the church and how, um, how they can respond to these issues. We also have Laura Perry, so this is a, a woman who was born as a woman, transitioned to be a man named Jake, and she also lived eight years that way and had a, a church community that never stopped praying for her. She came from a Christian family, and I think a lot of people think that these issues um, don't face you know Christian families that, that go to church every Sunday. You're not going to deal with it. No, Christians are dealing with these issues, but That's she right. had a praying mama who God just worked in her mom's heart and Honestly, the the mom, Francine Perry, tells her story about trusting God with your kid when stuff like this is going on in their life. Powerful, powerful testimony. Um, we also have Stephen Black, who lived as a gay man and was involved in that scene. Um, he started a ministry called First Stone Ministry. He has spent First Stone Ministries. He has spent 30 years helping people. Um, who struggle with same-sex attraction. And he recently did a survey because, you know, the, the media will say, nah, I think it's Alan Chambers from Exodus International said 99.1% of people will never change um, mm. if they have it. Well, he did a survey, Stephen Black from First Home Ministries, that shows that, in fact, um, I think it's upward of 60 to 70% who stick with counseling, who of their own volition choose to have this therapy. They, they say this is an unwanted um, attraction, find a measure of freedom um, over these these addictions. And so powerful ministry at First Stone, as mm-hmm. well as um, we also have Denise. 
chick. She has help for, for families. Now, Denise's perspective is interesting because it was her father who, when she was eight years old, came to her and said he's always wanted to secretly be a woman. And she had to deal with having a father leave her, but he didn't die. He didn't just abandon them. He left to become a woman. And the grief that families that deal with this and the confusion that it brings in. And she offers a really neat perspective of how we can minister to families who struggle with these things. Yeah. Three of those individuals I'm very familiar with and their testimonies are powerful. So I'm looking forward to the broader Christian community having access to their stories. Now, as I mentioned, this is going to uh, premiere online tomorrow. Tell our listeners what they need to do to see in his image. Yes, well, I'm so excited to announce that we are making this available for free at inhisimage.movie. All you have to do is enter your email address to be able to watch this, share it with friends and family. You know, we we talked about... do we release this in movie theaters? Where do we go? And we really feel like with everything going on in our nation right now, this message is so timely and important. We want to release it now, and we want people to hear it. So it is free of charge. It will begin starting tomorrow and will remain up. So um, it will be up indefinitely. If you're busy tomorrow, make sure um, you earmark that website in his image dot movie and that you pass it on to your friends and family. We are praying and asking God to make this video go viral. Like how awesome would that be if the LGBT community could know there is freedom and hope in Christ. And um, if we can forward an email of somebody slipping on a skateboard, like we can, I think as Christians, we can get the message out that there is hope in Jesus. Well, Kendra, thank you so much for the work that you have done. I know that is that has cost you something. <laughs> you don't do this kind of work without some backlash. So I, I thank you for your willingness to do that. And I just want to encourage our listeners to take full advantage of this opportunity uh, to have answers to much of the confusion um, and biblical truth that's in this movie. So again, thank you for talking with us today. And thank you for this documentary. Thank you as well. Kendra White is the director of uh, with the American Family Studios of this new film, In His Image on Gender and Sexuality. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll talk with Dr. Paul Brownback. He's the author of Licensing Selfishness, the Secular and Evangelical Ideology Destroying America. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Next, we're going to review a book titled Licensing Selfishness, The Secular and Evangelical Ideology Destroying America. It's a fascinating book because it draws our attention to a human and natural trait that, if licensed, leads us in a direction that ultimately will lead not only to personal but national destruction. My guest is Paul Brownback. He is a Ph.D. He graduated from West Point, has a Master of Divinity degree from Talbert Theological Seminary, a Master of Human Relations from University of Oklahoma, and a Ph.D. from New York University. He has served as a pastor, a counselor, a college president. He's published two books, The Danger of Self-Love, which examines the contemporary self-esteem movement from a biblical perspective, and Counterattack. He writes a weekly article on moral, social, and political issues for his blog, Hope that's real.com. And today he joins us to talk about his latest book, Licensing Selfishness, the Secular and Evangelical Ideology Destroying America. Dr. Brownback, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Georgine. It's a real privilege. 
you make the point that the uh, human inclination towards selfishness is not a new story. It begins really right at the beginning in the Garden of Eden. But when you license selfishness, when you uh, elevate it to a virtue, uh, the damage it can cause, um, we're really seeing some of that even today. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean uh, with the, uh, the, the phrase licensing selfishness? Well, Georgina, I believe that uh, the secular culture as well as evangelicals have adopted a concept that really gives us permission to live selfishly. It's saying that it's okay to uh, live any way we want to live. It's okay to make choices that benefit uh, ourselves, even at the expense of other people. As you pointed out, uh, human beings have uh, that inclination naturally. And uh, and when we license it, when we say it's okay, then we really do a lot of damage. You write that the current proliferation of selfishness doesn't merely result from normal uh, cultural erosion. It is licensed by an ideology of selfishness and interconnected ideology, psychology and theology that unleashes selfishness in both secular society and the evangelical church. Selfishness comprises a powerful human inclination without any encouragement. An ideology that protects and even promotes selfishness has put it on steroids, creating societal chaos. And you give uh, several examples of what this selfishness looks like. It's not just elevating one's own uh, personal interests, but it's also um, having an impact on the value of others, the the value of others who may hold a different point of view, who may um, want to do things differently. They are devalued to the point where my selfish interests uh, makes them a a non-entity, essentially. You know, the the concept that that I believe is so destructive, one that is accepted by secular society and one that's accepted by evangelicals, and uh, surprising to many of your listeners, I'm sure, but the concept is that of unconditional love and acceptance. And that has become the hallmark of, of our secular society. Actually, the, the whole aspect of unconditional love, unconditional acceptance, is the, the ultimate moral principle that guides our society. Uh, accepting is always right. Not accepting is always wrong. And so we see this playing out in, uh, oh, abortion. You can, you Mm -hmm. can, uh, kill your child and, uh, and, uh, and I accept you. Or, uh, you can, uh, be a transgender and transgender male, uh, has to be accepted unconditionally. Therefore, uh, he must be accepted, uh, participating in women's sports. And so you have a, a girl who has uh, worked her heart out to excel in a sport and then have this biological male come along and, and steal her championship from her and all in the name of unconditional acceptance. We must accept this biological male unconditionally, which means that we must allow him to participate. We, we see this unconditional acceptance at work in many aspects of our secular society and also in evangelical society and it's it's extremely destructive as you pointed out when we, we when we talk about unconditional acceptance that sounds innocent enough well i accept you i love you unconditionally however when we say that in essence we're telling that person 
Uh, you can live any way you want to without consequences. I accept you just the same regardless of how you live, which means that uh, you accept them even if they hurt other people. And therefore, when you say, I accept you unconditionally, you're saying you're the only person that really matters. The people that you hurt really don't matter. And, and therefore, it's a very destructive concept. And it's wrecking havoc both in secular society and uh, in evangelical society. I suppose it's not surprising that secular society would move, um, would co-op, in fact, concepts that uh, they believe reflect a Christian worldview and move in a direction that, uh, again, elevates selfishness to uh, a virtue. But within the evangelical church, I suppose that is more surprising to me, given the fruit of the Spirit and what the scriptures teach. Is there a, a belief that unconditional love and acceptance is another way of expressing the concept of grace? And is that what God's accepting and uh, receiving us unto himself, this holy God that we serve. Is that what uh, his grace is? Well, I believe that that is how this concept actually made its way into evangelical mindset. Uh, it's not, this concept, unconditional love and acceptance, not found in Scripture. The, the term is not found in Scripture, nor is the concept. Uh, it, it probably made its way into the evangelical world, first of all, through to the Jesus people. And, and Jesus people did a lot of good things. They brought a lot of vitality, a lot of evangelical zeal to, to the evangelical church. But they also dragged along with them uh, the, uh, the ideologies of the hippie movement. And this was one of the, one of the ideologies. And so uh, they, they were responsible, I think, at least to some extent, in introducing it to the evangelical church and, and baby boomers, likewise, they they uh, picked up this concept in in schools and entertainment industry uh, from the uh, mainstream media, and and therefore they uh, <clears throat> brought it into the evangelical uh, uh, community. But the major conduit, I believe, was uh, uh, evangelical psychology back in the. 70s and 80s, we find the advent of a, a strong uh, presence of evangelical psychology. And back in that day, uh, this concept of unconditional love and acceptance was a major uh, force within secular psychology, and that's where they got their training in, in, in this perspective. And so uh, as evangelicals began to uh, embrace psychology. They they picked it up from there. But but as you mentioned, <clears throat> and one major reasons why we felt at home with the concept of unconditional love and acceptance is that it it seems to reflect grace. I, I mean, grace is God accepting us apart from works. And so, at least from a casual perspective, uh, well, that would seem to say, well, He accepts us unconditionally. And that's not accurate. Uh, there are conditions to grace. Grace is, is not unconditional. For example, saving, saving grace, uh, the, the condition is faith. If we didn't have a condition, everybody would be saved. But Scripture says, no, you receive God's grace when you, you uh, exercise saving faith. So, so grace is a conditional term. But... Uh, Again, a more casual understanding of grace uh, 
gives people the impression, oh, grace and unconditional acceptance seem to be the same thing. And I, I believe even evangelicals have equated the two, and uh, that's what's uh, prompted us to buy into this error. Now, we need to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation in just a moment. Again, we're talking with Dr. Paul Brownback, his latest book, Licensing Selfishness, the Secular and Evangelical Ideology. He has a fascinating history of how it made its way into uh, the church as well as into the broader secular society and the impact on our culture, on entertainment, and on our national life. We'll continue that conversation in just a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Paul Brownback. He's the author of Licensing Selfishness, the Secular and Evangelical Ideology Destroying America, a fascinating uh, book that gives a bit of history and context to understanding this notion. Now, is this uh, the disagreement between Calvinism and Arminian uh, point of view uh, from a theological point of view? Is it a theological question? Uh, or is it a, a question of culture influencing theology in general within the evangelical church? Well, it really doesn't get into the uh, Arminian-Calvinist issue. It, it uh, actually has been uh, adopted by uh, people with both of those perspectives, and mm-hmm. it doesn't really get into that per se. It's, it's more of an issue of uh, Christian living. And... Uh, <clears throat> See, if if we believe that a person accepted unconditionally, that takes us to some other beliefs that we bought into. One of them is the idea that we don't have to perform to please God or be accepted by Him, and that's that's a, a common cliche among evangelicals today. Well, you non-performance-based Christianity, and they they talk about well, we don't want to be dragged back into performance-based Christianity, and uh, well, non-performance-based Christianity is an outgrowth of unconditional acceptance. If if we accept somebody unconditionally, that means that, that they don't have to live a certain way. They don't have to perform for our acceptance. And so, likewise, if if God accepts them unconditionally, that means that uh, that they don't have to perform to please God. It doesn't matter how they live. God is just as pleased with them. There's a cliche today, there's nothing you can do to make God love you more and nothing you can do to make God love you less. And so so your lifestyle has nothing to do with God's attitude toward you. you another way uh, that that is expressed today is that when God uh, looks on you, he doesn't see uh, your performance. He, or some people say, well, he doesn't see your dirt. He, he doesn't see your sinfulness. He just sees the righteousness of Christ. And, and you know, Georgine, when you look at Scripture, you just, you just see virtually hundreds of passages that say that this is not the case. For example, you take the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Here the church just gets kicked off. We have the Pentecost. We have all kind of people becoming coming to the Lord and, and so forth. And then we have Ananias and Sapphira coming along and, and seeming from Scripture, these are two believers, and, uh, and they uh, perform a very generous act. They sell a property and give a substantial portion of it to the church, 
And um, I imagine in today's world, the church leaders would be very happy with that. The problem is that they lied about it. They said they gave the total amount to the church when they only gave part, and God struck them dead. Well, you say that doesn't really reflect unconditional love and acceptance. Uh, God drowning most of the population of the world in the flood certainly doesn't reflect unconditional love and acceptance. God's uh, destruction of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah is another uh, expression that God does not love and accept unconditionally. And, And someone might say, well, yeah, but that's Old Testament stuff. How about the New Testament? And well, we we talked about Ananias and Sapphira, but we also have the situation of the uh, church in Corinth that uh, uh, during the communion service, rather than being sensitive toward people who have less, there were some people in the the church that that brought a a really big box lunch and and stuffed themselves while. Others look on hungrily, and God said, or Paul said in uh, 1 Corinthians 11.30, for this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep, or many uh, many die. And, and God apparently smote some of these people dead for, for this act of selfishness. Or we find the tribulation ahead, and, and we, we find the uh, book of Revelation talking about Hundred pound hailstones falling on people, and 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 that certainly does not reflect unconditional acceptance. And and then there's the issue of an eternal hell, which which also uh, indicates that God does not accept those people unconditionally. So many many pl- portions of Scripture, many passages of Scripture, shows that this is not biblical, and yet it has been embraced by contemporary evangelicals, and and again, it's a dangerous concept because really it licenses selfishness. One of the uh, results of this is that uh, there's there's very little preaching on sin anymore, and the reason mm-hmm. is that doesn't fit into the contemporary evangelical template. You write about um, the remedy for licensed selfishness, and that is agape love. That's not something politics can produce. It's not something that entertainment culture can produce. This is the function of the church. Can you talk a bit about how we um, resist this licensed selfishness that is so prevalent in the secular community as well as within the church? Well, first of all, we need to get back to the understanding and recognizing the authority of God. When you think about unconditional acceptance, uh, if if we believe that God accepts us unconditionally, that really undermines the authority of God. That means uh, God does not exercise His authority toward us. We can live any way we want to. We can we can uh, neglect God's commands. Uh, we can neglect the teachings of Scripture, and God's just as happy with us uh, while we do that. So it undermines God's authority. We need to get back to where we recognize that, that God is a God of authority. He tells us how to live, and we need to be obedient to that, and there are consequences when we're not. We lose fellowship. Uh, we lose reward. We lose his blessing. In fact, Scripture says he doesn't even listen to our prayers. 
we need to get back to the authority of Scripture. Uh, as I've already mentioned, uh, this concept just ignores many, many passages of Scripture. Uh, contemporary evangelicals tend to uh, cherry-pick their Scriptures that they, uh, that they uh, teach and preach on, and they ignore so many others that don't fit into this template of unconditional acceptance. And then we need to, to get back to where we, uh, we exercise the disciplines necessary to live a mm-hmm. godly life. Unconditional acceptance has really weakened us. We, if it's, it's like a, a, a football player going out there, but not, not doing any exercises. And, 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 and because of that, we've become weak and we need to regain the, the, uh, spiritual muscle to uh, fight in the culture war. Well, we certainly are in a culture war, and you write about that in the book, Licensing Selfishness. In the last chapter, you include a plan that would enable evangelicals to win the culture war. Can you give us a bit of an overview of that plan, how we can influence the culture around us in a way that will restore what's been lost? Well, I sure can. And this, for me, is a is a very significant and, and a frustrating issue in a way. Uh, I, I, I saw a uh, television special or a YouTube special last night on, uh, on America. And uh, in it, they made the point that the church is, is the greatest threat to the left in this country, that, that we have the power to, to uh, overcome the, the forces of the left in this country and restore righteousness and decency and so forth. Why aren't we? What, what is the reason why, why we are not uh, exercising the power that God has given us? And uh, I list several factors. Uh, one of them is corporate prayer. The Apostle Paul in First Timothy chapter 2 says that, uh, that uh, corporate prayer uh, is one of the, the major uh, factors that we need to give attention to in the church. He, he says there, first of all, that prayer needs to be made, talking about prayer within the church. Most church services we go to today have very little prayer. We have people praying individually, but in terms of church prayer, it is practically, practically non-existent. But a major factor is unity. Uh, evangelicals today do not have a unified approach to fighting the culture war. We, we are splintered. We, we uh, do the, our major fighting through parachurch organizations, and they do a great job. I think about American Family Association, American Research Council, and others mm-hmm. doing a great job in, in terms of as, as much as they can do as, as individual organizations, but, but without unity, without a unified approach, uh, uh, there is a very limited amount to what we could accomplish. If the evangelical church, and I'm not suggesting that we all meet in the same building or anything, but, but I, I am suggesting that if we had something like a, a, a unifying organization, like, uh, like a uh, uh, social action center that, that under which all evangelicals would, would come together and join in the culture war, uh, we could have a great influence, but we don't have that kind of coordinated effort. And, and because of that, 
the uh, the secular world just defeats us at almost every turn. For example, uh, right now a major problem is social media, and mm-hmm. we see this in the news almost every day. They so social media uh, blocking uh, conservative and Christian messages, and. Uh, well, it, 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 there there are probably about 30 million evangelical Christians in the country today. Well, we could have our own social media, and uh, and it could be as big as Facebook. It could be as big as Twitter, and it wouldn't have to be necessarily labeled as Christian. It could be um, just the good social media, but it could be controlled by Christians and. Uh, and because it's not labeled Christian, many, many unsaved people, many people in the secular world could join in and it could be a dominant force as as influential as Facebook and as Twitter. But because of our lack of unity, we can't do that. And uh, and therefore, we are victimized by uh, by these forces. Well, there's so Think much. Another, more. Uh, Go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say there's so much more in your book that we won't have time to to get into. Um, But again, the title is Licensing Selfishness, the Secular and Evangelical Ideology Destroying America. Now, where can our listeners acquire a copy of the book and follow um, the social media, your blog that you uh, write on on a regular basis? Uh, You can uh, can get the book almost at every outlet, Amazon or uh, Nook or uh, it's in uh, both print form and it's in the electronic form, the ebook form. So uh, it, it's available almost, almost anywhere. Uh, and my blog, the uh, actually I've, I've changed the name of my blog. It's truthforyou.com. T-R-U-T-H-F-O-R and the letter U.com. And uh, I would uh, love to have people uh, tune into my uh, my blog and, and I try to to uh, write to that every week. Well, uh, the book is absolutely fascinating, and I'm sorry we don't have more time to go in depth because there's a lot of depth in the book that we didn't get to. But I thank you for taking the time to uh, join us here today. And again, I would encourage our listeners to read Licensing Selfishness, The Secular and Evangelical Ideology Destroying America. Dr. Brownback, thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me, Georgine. I appreciate it. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back with our final segment for today's program. We went over a little on each of our interviews this hour, so this time is very short. But I thought I'd share with you a new study according to Google Trends. Apparently, the most Googled phobia of the year is fear of other people. According to researchers who attribute the trend to COVID-19, the pandemic. Now, we are told to look at each other as petri dishes teeming with viral deadly bacterium that can end our life in a matter of moments. So it's been interesting to me to walk through the grocery store and typically you pass one another and there's you might nod and smile at each other. Of course, you can't see anyone smile these days. But now you see people deliberately and apparently this is what we're told to do, move apart from each other. I've been in several situations where there wasn't a way to move to the right or to the left, and we were being pressed together in what would have been uh, perfectly natural, except for the pandemic. And we look at each other and just sort of chuckle because it's so awkward to um, to approach each other or 
not to approach each other in natural ways. Well, apparently this Google uh, survey, this trends indicates that people are looking up the fear of other people. It's called anthropophobia. Uh, it made up 22% of all the fears that uh, searched nationwide in 2020, five times the number last year, according to Psych News Daily. Well, searchers for the word peaked between April the 19th and the 25th as the coronavirus uh, crisis raged. And many people were stuck in lockdown, according to the outlet, which cited a report by the security firm ADT. Well, New York's most searched fear was um, philophobia, the fear of falling in love or intimacy. In Florida, which seemed a sky-high number of coronavirus cases, the most Googled fear was germophobia. That's understandable. Californians, by contrast, were most uh, frightened by having no cell phone, also known as nomophobia. New Jersey is um, most scared of the dark. Massachusetts is terrified by failure, and Indiana fears being alone. Well, to come up with the results, researchers analyzed Google Trends data over the past 10 months. I don't know how that reflects the general population. I mean, how many people go to Google to search their greatest fears? Um, but nonetheless, among those who use it as a tool, as a tool rather, Google Trends suggests that people are afraid of, uh, and they're researching, the fear of other people. Now, this has sort of been um, imposed upon us, again, seeing one another as Petri dishes. We're only one cough, uh, one conversation away from falling over dead with coronavirus or COVID-19. Uh, but it's a challenge to us when we are not uh, encouraged to be together in physical proximity to maintain closeness in other ways. We are blessed with technology where we have telephones and we have video conferencing and we can even use uh, some of these smartphones for phone calls like the Jetsons where you can actually see the people on the other end. We can write to one another and things are still being picked up and delivered. We can mail, we can email, uh, we can text. We have ways of communicating with one another. And I just want to, in our closing moments of the program, encourage all of us when we cannot gather physically to encourage one another and to gather in other ways. Um, we live in the 21st century and God has gifted us with what they didn't have in the 19th century with the flu pandemic. We have ways of connecting with other people who so desperately need to be connected and uh, to hear a message of hope. So those of you who in these earthen vessels carry a message that has eternal import, Let's take full advantage of this season where people are looking, maybe to Google, uh, they're looking for answers. We have a better resource and, in fact, an infallible resource for what's troubling the human heart. Make connection, encourage, inspire. Let's be ambassadors of Christ during this season. Hey, I want to thank James Blend for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, and Dan Rice for the use of his office. Thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. I hope you'll join us right here tomorrow. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.